Welcome to the Networking with Plants in the Anthropocene podcast. Um, today we're joined with the wonderful Prudence Gibson, prolific, prolific author and artist. Um, I'm so excited. She's going to share her forthcoming book, uh, The Plant Thieves, with us. So welcome, Prudence. Could you introduce yourself? Thanks, Kate. Yes. Um, so my name's Prudence Gibson. Um, I live here in Sydney, Australia. I work as a um, researcher at the School of Art and Design, which is part of the University of New South Wales in Sydney. So the School of Art and Design is, as it says, <laughs> full of fantastic artists and designers. It's a really exciting kind of vibrant place to, to work and to research. And my research has been ongoing, in an ongoing capacity, has been more and more interested in plant life. And so I've I've written a book. I wrote a book about an artist, Australian artist who's very well known, more actually more internationally than in Australia. And her name's Janet Lawrence. She does a lot of environmental art. And then we also wrote a book called The Covert Plants, uh, which was a um, edited with some friends. Really sort of kicked off this idea of what what do these changes in plant science mean for philosophy and for art and for narrative. And then, yes, then oh, then in 2018, I wrote The Plant Contract, which was a book uh, many of your listeners will know, the fantastic plant philosopher Michael Marda. And so he, um, he commissioned a book by me for Brill, and it was called The Plant Contract. And I was kind of following on this idea from um, Michelle Sayers about the natural contract that we as humans have broken our pact with the natural world and, you know, we are merely renters on the planet, but, but we've broken that pact. And so I wanted to write this book about how we might be able to repair that broken bond and maybe just if every human had a contract with a, a plant or a tree, maybe that's a good start. And also this big question for me being in art and design, which is what can art and narrative do to bring attention to these plant issues. Um, and then my most recent book is The Plant Thieves, which was the result of a three-year big grant. So we have this scheme in Australia called the Australian Research Council Grants. And um, I was lead CI on that project and we partnered with the herbarium. And the herbarium is, it was in the middle of the city in Sydney, but it's just been moved out to this state-of-the-art fantastic location just southwest of Sydney and the herbarium is a place where currently they have 1.4 million specimens of plants and fungi and so what happens is it's kind of like it's a really it seems like a place where there's just these inert plants dried and pressed on a page and put in drawers and then you never really look at them again but it's quite dynamic so all of the botanists and sort of horticulturists and gen, um, genetic researchers um, go out into the field, come back in their troopies, freeze the plants, press the plants, store the plants, write information. But it's also really dynamic in the sense that they're constantly being pulled out by researchers to find out information about how plants have changed out, out in, the, in the bush and how plants have moved around the world, how they've been attacked, for instance, by by pests or um, invasive species. So it's a really interesting dynamic space, but like any archive, and I've done a lot of archive work in my past, you know, there's a lot of boring stuff. Like, you, you know, you really like flicking through it and you perhaps have got an idea in mind about what story the, the plants and the herbarium might tell you, and you might end up with a completely different story than you had expected. And that's just the kind of the chance encounter in an archive, which I find really exciting as well. Definitely. Well, that was such a great introduction to the text. And I, as a reader, I definitely had that experience. I wasn't sure what to expect going in, but it was really fascinating and multifaceted. Like you just have this really rich 
collection of stories. And so I really encourage er, readers, listeners (laughs) to go out and become readers of this wonderful text. Um, I have a few general questions about the text just to kind of introduce our audience um, to some of the really cool uh, themes that run throughout the book. Um, So naming, naming is such a fascinating topic, I think, in the environmental humanities in general, Um, but it plays a role throughout your text. One quote that really stuck out to me on page 45 was Barbara Biggs, uh, quote, conservation is achieved through naming and taking note, end quote. Could you explain this connection between naming and conservation? And do you agree that naming is pivotal to bettering relationships between humans and plants? And then are personal, cultural, and institutional names equally important? Or do you think personal names for plants or cultural names for plants or institutional names, since they all kind of have different uh, functions, I guess. <laughs> Do you think that one is more valuable than the other? Sorry, that's a, <laughs> a big web of questions. <laughs> that is a web of questions, mycelium, a mycelium of questions. I mean, I think that this is such an interesting question for you to, to ask, and naming is really problematic. It's it's a It's a real provocation around the world, and it's probably the aspect of the herbarium collection that most surprised me and is and is causing me ongoing angst. <laughs> um, so, you know, Australia is an unusual country in some ways because colonisation happened at the same time that herbaria around the world were really kind of extremely um, prolific. Um, Australian First Nations peoples were here for, we now think, over 70,000 years before white settlers invaded. Um, But in 1770, Banks and Solander, sort of famous naturalists um, from from the UK, came down to Sydney and scoped out Kame, uh, which is the Aboriginal word for Botany Bay, And that, in a sense, as soon as those guys stepped foot on the shore, they started to name the plants in Australia. So there's obvious kind of, you know, colonial associations with renaming. And um, Linda Tui by Smith says that, of course, that renaming is a kind of violence. So it obliterates or erases um, First Nations naming. And... And I'm really torn because, you know, spending time with Barbara Briggs, who is a world-renowned genetic botanist who has worked for over 50 years at the herbarium here in Sydney and is so well-loved. So everybody I spoke to at the herbarium, every time uh, anyone mentioned the name Barbara Briggs, they kind of smiled and went, you know, to touch their chest, like, oh, love that woman. And indeed, she was just absolutely an incredible person, like a, a re- very early woman to be working in, in what, um, in Australia at least, was a very male-dominated, androcentric, Eurocentric. So lots of English people. <laughs> and are still coming to Australia and sort of working and um you know, colonialism is not over, let's put it that way. But Barbara Briggs is an amazing woman, really interesting kind of chromosomal changes of different plants, um, flowering plants as well as grasses, was with, and she had many plants named after her. And so, yeah, her quote is so interesting because on the one hand, naming is critical to conservation. So we've got you know, like many other herbaria around the world, we've got this Carl Linnaeus Linnaean system of naming, of classifying and ordering plant um, families and genuses and species, which is so helpful universe in a universal sense. So, you know, we can t- talk to herbaria around the world. Everyone knows what we're talking about. And so we can track movement of plants, changes of plants, um, endangerment of plants, and 
um, and share plants. For instance, when we had the 2019 bushfires here in Sydney, they were really terrible. And so the Sydney Herbarium sent 10,000 seeds back to Kew in London to care for them just in case something bad happened. So conservation in that sense is really, and connection to this network of Commonwealth Herbaria is really important, really important for knowledge, really important for genetics, really important for sharing information globally. Um, and, and having those Latin names, I mean, I'm so terrible with Latin names, I just cannot retain them. <laughs> so as you say, though, Kate, you know, you've got the Latin names, then you've got the um, common names, and then you've got nicknames. Um, and it's a really interesting question about the hierarchy or, or the valuing of, of plant names and access in terms of knowledge. Like, you know, if someone uses a Latin name, I'm like, which plant is that again? Can you tell me the common name? Because I need the context. So even that, even me as a sort of a, um, um, a lecturer at university, you know, I still have access issues. So if if I'm having access issues, then probably everyone else is. That's a problem for the herbarium and it's a problem for sharing information. But the thing about plant naming more recently for me is that what I discovered in my time looking at the herbarium was that there's, to our great shame, there's very few Aboriginal words for plants in the herbarium collection. So they've just digitised the collection so that it's photographed everything, 1.4 million specimens. And the databases that they've set up, they don't actually have a field allocated for Aboriginal names, um, which I found surprising. There's also no information on the early records of early collected plants about who collected those plants. So there was there were many, many Indigenous guides who took the colonial collectors around Australia and there's no way those Europeans would have had a chance of finding any of those plants without Indigenous guides. And most of them are not even acknowledged in the collection. So there's a real erasure of First Nations knowledge uh, and complete lack of respectful acknowledgement of those years, which and that work needs to be done. And then, and then so through the course of writing The Plant Thieves, I've spoken to a lot of Indigenous plant experts. So, for instance, there's this amazing woman that everyone should follow called Zena Cumpston, and she is a First Nations scholar who lives down in Victoria, and she's done a lot of work, public works, where she's um, added Indigenous names to, you know, 10,000 Indigenous names to areas where, the, where plants are growing. And the interesting thing that Zena explained to me was something that I didn't really know before, <clears throat> which is that a lot of Aboriginal words for plants have a prefix or a suffix that is information or even advice about the action of that plant. So part of the word recommends or suggests um, a time to, to, to pick, a time to harvest, um, a time for flowering. You know, the, within, in that language, it's just so ingenious, you know, like I was thinking, we don't have anything like that in English. Um, we're so far behind Indigenous culture and knowledge. It's, it's shocking. So, and I, I said to, to Zena and to other um, Indigenous plant experts that I met on my travels, um, why is there no uh, information in the, in the herbarium? And a couple of them have said to me, why would we share that knowledge with you fellas? It's like, okay, that's a really good point. We're not exactly very white, you know, white settler culture has not really been, we, we haven't proven ourselves in any way. And so I guess that opens up now, Kate, um, opens the doors for me anyway, and perhaps everyone else listening to the podcast, which is, well, what do we do now? What do we do? What kind of naming structures could we uh, collaborate with First Nations people 
that doesn't like not throw out the baby with the bathwater perhaps maybe there's new ways of naming that's more kinship cluster like that the Cascadia project bill project does um and there are other kind of people groups of people around the world who are starting to think about just different ways of using language different creating new lexicons so maybe not thinking in such a linear way maybe not thinking in such a Linnaean hierarchical way keeping it all but then understanding that maybe discrete ecologies locality is so much more important than coming up with universal or global methods of naming definitely that's so fascinating um because it's all you know wrapped up in justice issues and epistemic justice issues which is a philosopher i find really fascinating as well Since you mentioned access, I wanted to follow along in that vein. Um, access, again, comes up throughout the book. When you think about the herbarium, who can access which plants? Who can access which spaces? Um, how does one access those plants and spaces? And so I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about access and which experiences that you record in the book, because again, the book is just so full of completely different experiences. Um, if you could just mention one or two for us that most stand out to you as being important for issues of access. Yeah, thanks, Kate. I mean, so the way I wrote this book, it's it's narrative nonfiction, I suppose. So it's first person um, from my point of view. There is a thread of my own story that moves through the book and I do interview lots of people and I spend a lot of time with the plants so the the digitization process that I don't think it's quite finished but um but having 1.4 million specimens available so having this database available which I've tried to access a few times and it's still very glitchy but the idea is that you have you know the information about the plant names not Indigenous names, but that there's a notes section. Thanks very much. You know, then occasionally is an, an Aboriginal name in that section. But location, notes on the collection, just other bits of really interesting information. And, and the longitude and latitude of plants, of that plant. This is critically important. And I was really surprised. I guess I was quite naive when I went to start interviewing everyone. And I... I was working with an artist um, who works at ANU, which is the Australian National University in Canberra, and she we were doing a little exhibition for Plant Bank, which is where the new herbarium is. Uh, Plant Bank's another whole story. Um, and she needed access to the database of certain trees out at Mount Annan. She needed access to 4,000 trees because she was making this really fantastic um, uh, VR work and so she needed that digital information to to create the artwork and it was sort of sound and visuals and it was really really fun so you kind of walked around with your phone or your tablet and had this kind of experience of learning the the names of the trees around you but then also having this soundscape and playful kind of um, visual experience as well and so Anna Anna Rohrpuck is the artist's name. So we set up this meeting with Joel Cohen, who runs all of the data sets at the gardens. And I was a little bit taken aback at the first meeting because I felt he was quite defensive towards Anna and was sort of really fine wanting to know all the details of her project before he gave her access to the, to the database. I thought that was quite odd at first. And, you know, she and I were raising our eyebrows at each other thinking, oh, this young buck, you know, <laughs> gatekeeping the, the herbarium, just let us in kind of thing. But I, I decided to ring him afterwards. At the time he said, look, it's just about profit. We don't want people to be profit-driven or profit-making when they access the collection. Okay. And then I thought, oh, no, there's more to that story. So I rang him back up interviewed him again and just said, come on, what's this all about, you know? And then he explained that longitude and latitude information, that there are risks uh, in the, in the, in the uh, herbarium collection and information has value. 
And so, you know, if you're looking at sort of rare orchids, for instance, or, um, you know, plants that pe- a lot of people want to research, like a certain kind of eucalyptus perhaps that everyone wants to research, what happens is there's kind of overuse or um, people go to those locations and harvest, not necessarily for necessarily for ill will, but they they get overused or they get stolen or they get damaged. And so um, that's one of the reasons that they he wanted to protect certain certain species. But what this was very early on in the research, what he kind of let slip was about the psychoactive plants in the collection. So I kept saying, but what kind of plants? He was like, oh, you know, orchids, rare plants. And I was like, orchids, rare plants? And I was like, really? And he was like, oh, fine, you know, fine, the psychoactive plants. So they they are very careful about that because there have been real problems, especially over in WA where um, kind of, you know, bushy places where, for instance, acacia, a certain kind of acacia, which has really high DMT, have been completely raised, like completely stripped. Whole areas have been stripped bare. Um, So it's a conservation issue around psychoactive plants. They're protecting the um, psilocybin mushrooms. They're protecting the different kinds of acacia. There's one kind of acacia, because drinking acacia is relatively new um, form of psychoactive imbibing and there's a particular kind of acacia that the herbarium and actually all the people in the psychoactive plant community won't tell anyone like they're just it's sort of adorable how committed and caring it's an aesthetics of care where all these people actually really have you know you're interested in ethics and the environment Kate there's this ethical standard amongst the people that I found really um, heartwarming, to be honest. So they've all agreed together. There's no legislation. There's no laws. They've just all agreed together to keep that kind of information secret. Now, some of your listeners might say, that's not fair. You know, we should all have access to this information, make up our own minds about whether or not we do the right thing or not. Um, And even more recently, so just a quick side um, point. So psilocybin, magic mushrooms. um, We've only been doing stage two trials here for therapeutic use psilocybin for people who are suffering from end of life or um, PTSD or anxiety, depression, and I think some eating disorders. So we've only gone to phase two trials here in Australia. and. Just a month ago, the Therapeutic Goods Administration here in Australia approved psilocybin for therapeutic use. Now, this is really strange. It's very odd. And there's a real story there about what happened and who was lobbying, who lobbied them and how it happened. But subsequently, I was talking to a friend of mine, Shelley James, who used to work in the Sydney Herbarium and now works at the Perth Herbarium on the other side of Um, Australia and she's actually locked away her psilocybin fungi so people can't even look at it anymore she's like it's just going to go crazy you know we need to protect the plants so these decisions are about conservation but it does open up an ethical question about who gets to decide this who gets to say what we can and can't see what we can and can't know Um, and I don't have the answers to those questions Yeah, it's such a fascinating set of ethical questions because it seems almost like the communities around, I'll say, like responsible use of the plants, maybe not in, I mean, imbibing is an entirely different spectrum of practices, but especially in like just making sure the plants can live because we don't overconsume them. Like, you know, that type of communal protection to me, at least on the face of it, seems like, oh, yes, that's incredibly wise. Like, I would trust, you know, people who have a certain respect for these plants to, like, be the gatekeepers. If there need to be gatekeepers, I prefer that as opposed to, like, you know, 
multinational corporations or something like that. And so, but it is like, there's this tension between like, well, what about individuals who want to like break into that, you know, break in, not thief, but break in is in like, you know, become a part of the community or at least access just the knowledge. And there might be some tension there between like, the knowledge of where exactly on the map it's located versus like what it does and you know some of the other knowledge around that. That's fascinating. Um, and that's another thing, uh, future readers of the text, um, you get to talk to quite a few people in some of these different communities. And it happens here in the States too. So um, the most, the example that's most on my mind is actually not psychoactive, it's um, chestnut trees. So we usually have tons of American chestnut trees, but then they were wiped out by a blight like quite a long time ago. And so now um, arboretums that have chestnut trees usually won't tell people where they are, primarily because of the traffic. Like there would just be like people who would, you know, probably not do anything to the tree itself, but probably disturb the ecosystem that the tree is in. And so, yeah, it's a huge, <laughs> a huge, uh, a huge um, collection of ethical issues. I wanted to ask you about your experience with research and learning. So as you are an academic, um, there was one story in particular that stood out to me with Uncle Ivan. And you had mentioned that though you had not recorded the conversation or asked about particular plants, which as a good researcher, you're like, I've got to get it on tape. I've got to get through my like 10 questions so that I can have like, I you know, uh, similarities and all of the different interviewees that you're um, talking with. Um, so neither of those things happened, but you learned a great deal from what you said Uncle Ivan needed to share. Academia can be so rigidly structured, sometimes for better, sometimes for worse. Do you think this project challenged some of those rigid structures? And in the times and places that discussions were more fluid, was there anything important you gained from letting connections happen more organically? And kind of zooming back, thinking about the herbarium, do you think some of these kind of more traditional institutions that don't always have a ton of access, even though they have a goal of kind of providing knowledge to other people, um, should they embrace some of these organic opportunities? So Uncle Ivan Wellington is a man who, an elder, who lives down at Camden, Campbelltown, which is where the new herbarium is based. So he is a real pillar of the community, the local community, um, ext extremely highly respected man. And so... I was advised to go and have a chat to him, have a yarn. And so that was set up. I wanted to take him a gift for his time and I was told he had a really sweet tooth. Um, anyway, I arrived for this meeting at the Campbelltown Arts Centre, which is a really beautiful, leafy, bushy place. And as I was walking down from the car park, I saw this I'll be honest, he was an adorable looking man and in his, probably in his late 70s and he was sitting, just sitting with his car door open, struggling, struggling with his shoes and I, I just knew it was him. So I was like, oh, Uncle Ivan, hi. And he was like, oh, Prudence, you know, I'm having trouble with my shoes. They're too tight, they're too tight. And he said, you go down, you go down, you, you go down, I'll see you down there. So I went down and we... As you say, I was prepared to do, I mean, before I became an academic, I was an art writer, an art journalist. I'm efficient. I like to have my recording device all sorted. I'm always prepared. 
I like to, to write as many questions as I can, a bit like you, Kate. I like to be organised and I like to ask probing questions too. And um, so it was all sorted. Yeah, I had my little notepad, just, you know, like <laughs> such a super dag, all sorted, pinpoised, really to ask lots of questions. And so we started to yarn and he, every time I picked up my pen and every time I said, oh, Uncle Ivan, is it all right if I record you? He sort of changed the subject and started to tell me story, different stories. And as you, as you note, it honestly wasn't until I was so touched by meeting him and so honoured to meet him that I didn't even notice that I hadn't recorded anything or asked a single question. It really did take days because, I mean, you know those people that you meet where you've just got constant goosebumps? On your skin, he's that kind of man. So he was a stolen generation man. Um, he grew up on the coast and he um, had a, a really idyllic childhood with his family until he was stolen, taken from his family and put in one of the Aboriginal houses um, on the coast there. And the pain... The pain of that life, it was just so, of course, you know, we all know these stories on the one hand. Um, you know, I'm a white, privileged, educated, middle-aged, middle-class woman. Um, I've worked with Aboriginal artists for a really long time. I, you know, I know these stories on the one hand, but when he told me his story of, you know, playing with the other kids, finding yams, collecting golf balls for money, just kind of really fantastic childhood. So much happiness and pleasure and joy in his face as he told me those early stories. And then, and then of course, being stolen and, and, and having his entire culture and language ripped away from him forever, really. It's not like people were stolen and then it was repaired. It's, 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 it's a life sentence of... Of, remo of removal from culture. And I guess I didn't really understand it. I didn't really understand it until Uncle Ivan told me. And I know that sounds ridiculous because I should know, I should know. I shouldn't have known it in my heart before that, but I guess, I, I don't know. I just didn't feel it so deeply until that day. Um, and the thing that <laughs> I, mean, I kind of sobbed afterwards because he was so forgiving you know, I'm this white woman going blah, 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 blah. He was so forgiving. He was so generous and he was so kind. And this waitress, young waitress came up and wanted to ask him some questions and he was just really kind and generous and, and talked about how his entire culture had been stolen um, and his knowledge of plants had been stolen. So these are all issues in the plant thieves. It's not just about people who pick a pick a, you know, hibiscus on their walk in the morning. It's, it's, all, it's all kinds of theft. It's all kinds of violence towards plants and First Nations people. So what I learned and didn't even realise that he was teaching me, which is like pure genius on his behalf, was that I guess I had no right to ask if I could record him. But he didn't say, you have no right to ask me, you know, if you can record me. He showed me. He showed me that that wasn't appropriate. With so much grace and kindness, even tenderness, I have to say. So to answer the bigger question of the structure of the university or academia, that the system for me has always, I'll, I'll be honest, worked quite well because I feel like narrative is a cheeky, a cheeky way to get around all kinds of academic issues you just say it's narrative though <laughs> so I've always been very experimental with my academic writing so my whole PhD was how I didn't like art writing in, in in our culture especially in Australia it seemed very male it was very patronizing it was very much about um who has who has the taste who has taste who has that um the right to make those decisions about whether an artwork is good or bad I really struggled with the ethics of that 
And so my PhD was like, you know, I'd start to talk about some issue in art history, art theory, and then I would just flick into fiction without any warning. And so I was kind of trying to disrupt that really annoying know-it-all sound of art, um, art experts. So I've always played around with how far I can push academic writing, how much I can get away with, how cheeky I can be, how personal I can be. Um, and I've had a lot of papers published. And, and I just, to be honest with you, Kate, I can't believe that they keep getting published because I'm not really conforming to those, those traditions. I mean, you know, the substance is there, I hope. Um, but, I, I mean, I, I think we should all be subverting these, these, these constructs if we need to. And I think that sub, subverting this, those storytelling techniques is a way to learn and it's a way to reveal truths and, and, and learning from Uncle Ivan to just shut up and listen was a really good lesson for me to learn, as you can see. Um, it's an ongoing learning lesson, lesson to be learned. So, I mean, I really strongly advocate for playfulness, play, essay means to play, try it out, be bold, fail. Oh, my God, Kate, the amount of failures that I've had. Um, so the acad academia is a bit like the herbarium. It's a really fantastic structure that I find extremely um, fulfilling and enriching. You know, as you would know, and just talking to you, it's just so fantastic to talk to like-minded people, people who have had read the same books. You know, that's actually so joyful, isn't it? To chat to people in the corridors and, you know, suddenly you'll have this random conversation. You're not going to have that with your siblings or your, or your or your mates really so I love the, I love institutions actually but but subvert but we it's our job to subvert them at the same time I really like this quote um from the plant thieves um quote there is a thin sheer membrane between theft and care, especially in the herbarium. What one person thinks of as theft, another considers merely sharing beauty. Can you explain to the readers how theft and care relate to the herbarium? Yes. I mean, you know, I said before, you know, um, sticking a, a flower in your ear when you're going for a walk in the morning or co collecting shells on the beach, grabbing a bit of um, uh, pig's ear, which is like a beautiful plant that grows on the, on the beach dunes, grabbing a bit to put in your garden. Um, yeah, just picking a frangipani branch and turning it upside down and planting it in your garden. You know, on the one hand, is that wrong? <laughs> I mean, you know, I really am. I'm not, I'm laughing because I'm uncomfortable. I don't, I just, I really, I don't know the ethics around theft. Um, meeting all these people, talking to, to, to all the people, at the staff at the herbarium, finding about, out about how they feel, the, the tensions between different groups. Um, there's a lot of, I think stigma and animosity towards the psychoactive community. And yet I found them to be extremely conscious of conservation and care. But that aesthetics of care is deeply important to me. And, and it's um it's it's I've done a little model of decolonizing plants and what that means for me, or which of course means decolonizing plant institutions. And you know, access is one of those issues. Um, telling true stories about the violence and, and massacres and horrifying stories of what happened to First Nations people in Australia, like calling calling that out, not pretending it didn't happen because it's uncomfortable. Um, accessing expertise of, amongst First Nations people in a respectful way. And then coming back around to kind of anesthetics of care and it was interesting talking to the psychoactive community because they are a group of people that sometimes exist on the fringes of society a little bit, low SES, um, you know, in and out of work, 
um, potentially kind of in, in circumstances where mental health is an issue, which perhaps drew them towards psychoactive plants in the first place to relieve ill health. And what, what I found amongst these people was they sort of explained to me that for most of them, in fact, it seemed almost unanimous, they had all started out as plant thieves. They had all started out being people who would go and find psilocybin magic mushrooms or go and find the right acacia for DMT or um, the mescaline um, cacti, you know, that kind of thing. Take it, eat it, drink it. <laughs> um, for, for a kind of self-care of sorts, of therapy and entertainment, I suppose, and a high. And that over time, however, as they started to, I guess, be more sustainable and grow their own plants, taking those plants actually really strengthened their relationship with those plants. And so they became instead of users and takers and thieves, they sort of learned a kind of communion with those plants and wanted to know more about those plants and developed a really deep connection with those plants and started to change from being plant takers to, to plant keepers or from plant thieves to plant carers. And I found that really interesting. And, of course, that takes time to, to, to move from being someone who wants some kind of experience, therapeutic or recreational experience, to being people who actually will do everything in their power to take care of those plants and protect them. So I think that that's been really instrumental in my understanding of, of theft and care. And I suppose the, the other big thread is that uh, decolonial thread as a result of of looking into the herbarium collection so deeply, of course I was faced with the, some of the horrors of violence done to First Nations people, the theft of their knowledge, and, and watching sort of hearing that, you know, so most of the traditions are oral, so, you know, why share, why share um, written information anyway? But um, just the, the pain of, of that loss, at times was a little bit almost too much for me, but of course too bad, you know, that's totally irrelevant. Um, so theft, the theft is about not just thieving plants, but thieving other people's First Nations culture. And 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 there's some really interesting people, like Jerry Turpin, who is um, the herbarium director up at Cairns, the tropical herbarium, and he is like a really fantastic, significant figure who talks about two-way botany and he has a name a plant named after him um because his name is jerry turpin it's aphrosia terpinii <laughs> which is a, leg, a flowering legume and um up in the rainforest what was really interesting about chatting to jerry was you know he, he again told me that how important his role is as an aboriginal man and he he represents a lot of the um local groups and goes out to community and talks to elders he explained Murray time to me, which I already, again, I thought I knew this stuff, but I didn't, um, which is Murray time is, I thought Murray time was just like just a different sense of time, like, you know, Murray time. I, you know, I know white people use it sometimes as like, oh, you're always late or you're always, you're like, and you're not sticking to, you know, European time kind of thing. But actually it's more about how time, time is not even linear. Time is the past, the present, the future all at once. And he'll go out to talk to communities about what they want him to do, what work they want him to do in the herbarium on their behalf. And he said, you know, be sitting around having a yarn and he'll think that the conversation is finished after five hours or whatever. And then suddenly someone will start talking and he'll be like, oh, we haven't even finished. This is going to go on for a few more hours. So that he, when he explained that, I was like, ah, yeah, it's actually about, Murray time is actually also about respect and, and learning to listen. Um, in a really round way. And, um, but Jerry, he's got the plant, the, the Aphrosia terpinii, named after him, which I sort of thought, oh, that's kind of odd in a way. Like, why not have, why not use an Aboriginal name 
if it's going to be named after you, but, you know, as usual, these things are complicated, I guess. But he also was talking about spirit plants, or I asked him about spirit plants. And in, in the context of asking him about spirit plants, he said that if he could choose his spirit, his spirit plant, it would be the peanut tree. And I guess part of me was like, oh, does that mean you don't, you haven't been allocated a, a plant spirit or token? Um, and he said, that's the thing that a lot of white people don't understand is that culture is ongoing. It's not stagnant. It's not static. It's not, it, you know, so much is lost. But what he was saying was it's ongoing, um, which was really, really interesting to hear as well. Since you mentioned um, the plant spirit, their spirit plant, um, could you discuss a little bit more what a spirit plant is and also how this specifically guided your journey in research? Because for future readers, <laughs> I love how the book kind of opens with the discussion of the spirit plant and then comes full circle near the end. So this this is, I guess, a contentious part of the book. and. I understand that it may provoke some people in a negative way, but I've always been quite witchy. And even as a child, um, I would collect stuff and like mix stuff and cast spells. And <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm Scottish by background, by legacy. So there's, there's some witchiness there that I've, I've always been aware of. And, and I think because I'm a white settler, and I'm so removed from my own culture. I mean, this is, again, contentious to talk about because, um, because First Nations people have been so violently taken from their culture. It's been stolen, whereas, you know, my relatives came, um, well, I wouldn't say of their own free will because <laughs> we are a penal colony, but, you know, it was a, um, it's just a, it's, it's a different context, I guess. And so I Felt, I felt for a long time, even for years and years and years, wondered whether there was a special plant for me, a plant that I might have some kind of connection for. Um, and I've been searching for it. And for a long time, I was completely obsessed with lantana. And lantana is a, um, a weed in Australia. It was brought by early settlers who stopped at the Cape, South Africa, and brought to, um, I think, to kind of support the sand dunes, but it's gone completely nuts. It's now registered as a um, very threatening invasive species. Um, and it really does overtake all the Indigenous plant life. And But the problem for me is, yes, I understand that, but it has the most beautiful flowers and it also is a butterfly attractor and it protects a lot of the blue wrens along the coast. So if you walk along, there's still bits and pieces because it's almost impossible to get rid of. And you can see the little blue wrens jumping around because it's sort of like a cage. It's very woody underneath the foliage. Um, so it creates this safe place where the minor birds don't come and swoop down and, and kill the little blue wrens. So it's it actually still has its uses. Um, and so I've actually been attacked violently about <laughs> lantana love, but I can see both sides of the lantana. I can see how interesting it is uh, as a species and, and I can also see the problems that it has. So I was really obsessed with lantana for a long time, but... During the course of writing this book, I really hoped there might be a, a plant spirit for me, something that I could connect to that meant something to me. And I really had almost given up by the end of the book. I just thought, oh, it's it's cultural. It's, it's, it's not possible for white settler people to connect with plants and animals anymore. I just have to accept that, that that's not possible um, for non-Indigenous people. It's not really allowed. It's appropriation. It's stealing someone else's culture. It's not going to happen. It, it's just, it's it's wrong. It's morally wrong. It's ethically wrong to even look for one. 
Um, and then I was, as I was reading over the book, I realised it was the evidence was already there in the stories that I'd already written. Um, so the Banksia tree, oh, my God. So I grew up with Banksia trees. They're actually really ugly. They're ugly. You, you know, if you sit underneath the Banksia tree, I'll, I don't know if this is appropriate, but it's like old man's balls, yucky old man's balls, like above you. It's scratchy. It's woody. Um, and so what happens is, it's a really interesting and important tree. So it changes so much across the seasons. So it has beautiful creamy white flowers that attracts all the native birds. Um, but actually the way it um, reproduces is that it has these cones, which has these follicles. And when there's smoke or fire, the follicles open and release the seed. So in Indigenous culture, fire stick farming, which is sort of a particular type of cultural burning, Indigenous people understood this. Us white settlers are really stupid. We didn't, we've never known it properly. We don't know how to do it properly. So there have been several disastrous attempts to, to do this serotony process where serotony is like fire to create um, the germination of seeds. Um, yeah, so it's a, it's a really significant plant and it's a really beautiful tree. And the, the cones are really heavy. So once the follicles release the seeds, or if they don't, like it doesn't always happen, but they get very heavy and they've kind of got these bristles on them. They're really heavy. And when they fall from the tree, if they hit you on the head, which one did, it really hurts. Um, but what I realised by the end of the story, I've spent a lot of time um, in a couple of Banksy trees just trimming them because they were looking a little bit unhealthy and watching them you know, really benefit from that trimming. And um, and I thought that was really interesting that this native tree, you know, we often think about in terms of plant philosophy that we should come to terms with, <clears throat> you know, the problems of being too anthropocentric and that plants exist with or without human, not only human activity or human interaction, but actually with or without human consciousness you know and that's sort of like that's a that's a big thing to get your head around um and so and I've been in that space for so long that I think philosophy plant philosophy is so important in order to to value the independent agency of plants but there is a risk that we're actually just removing ourselves from our deep human connection with plants at the same time and so over the course of this book I really just allowed myself because no one was watching. You know, writing is very solitary. I just spent a lot of time thinking about it, playing around with some psilocybins as well to see if that would help. And I just feel this great connection now with the Banksia tree because I suddenly realised, so in, in Australian white culture, white settler culture, there's this illustrator, children's illustrator called Mae Gibbs, and she wrote this book called Snuggle Pot, Snuggle Pot and Cuddle Pie. And these beautiful illustrations all about the Banksy trees. The most exquisite book. I totally grew up with it. My mother grew up. Everyone I know who's not Indigenous grew up with this book. Um, everyone knows it. And one of the main characters in the story was the evil Banksy man. Now, the evil Banksy man was a black man. So the whole book, of course, when you're a child, you're like, oh, scary banks. Then you grow up, then you read, then you learn. And it's like totally racist. You know, May Gibbs was basically saying that the evil Banksy man was an Aboriginal man. He's going to come and steal your children. That's what the book was about. The evil Banksy man coming to steal your children. Ironic because white settlers stole Aboriginal children. So, I mean, there's been a lot of discussion. Um, Evelyn Aralu and has written about this book and, and has done a much better job than the way I've just explained it to you. But as a result, I, as, you know, it's hard to get rid of those, you know, deep cultural experiences. So I kept thinking about the Banksy tree as this old man. Um, and then I realised towards the end, when I was sitting under it one day, the, the one that I got to know really well, that actually she's a goddess. Her name's Luna. She's a, she's a woman today, today. Tomorrow she'll be an old man. 
Today she's a goddess. And it was like, it was really interesting to me that, you know, we've got all these kind of non-binary issues at, um, now that, of course, you know, our art school is really a safe place for that for that kind of culture. So um, it just made me feel really happy <laughs> to sat, suddenly see this other side of the Banksy tree and to see that he is a goddess or she is a god in my eyes. And um, and that's where I'll leave it because I can't say that it's my plant spirit because I don't have, think I have the right to do that. It still sounds like appropriation. But, but there's a sadness in me that I'm not allowed or afforded that right. Yeah, it's, I think it can be so complicated, not unlike <laughs> the history of all of these institutions like the herbarium and also just there's a lot of messy work I think involved in making sense of how best to decolonize things and like you have mentioned before with naming different plants and whether we continue with the Linnaean system or do something else like there's just a lot of messiness and unfortunately for some philosophers who like neat tidy answers like it's something that there may not be a really clear this is morally right this is morally wrong like that there's a lot of messiness with it As we kind of wrap up, I have a question about a group that you mentioned, um, because as we know, this is a podcast um, that's nourished and produced by the Networking with Plants in the Anthropocene uh, group, just an interdisciplinary international collaboration of sorts amongst a bunch of people who love plants. Um, and you can imagine I was really excited when you, in the book, the uh, group Dirt Witches came up and you had mentioned witchery a little bit earlier. Um, but can you explain to our listeners what the ditch or Dirt Witches are and what role you think participating in a rich multifaceted group of plant people plays in your personal and professional life? Oh, it's been joyful. Kate. So in Australia in 2019, we had a federal election and um, we've had a, a very right, had had a right-wing government and they got back into power. And on that evening, it was my birthday and I had a gr group of friends over. I don't know why I did that, but anyway, I, we actually thought that the government was going to change. So I thought it would be like, great, and then we'll all just like have a party. But instead, we just sat around morosely um, feeling really actually feeling not just dejected, but actually feeling quite scared because there was not going to be any action on climate and there was not going to be any end to logging and deforesting and um, all the stuff, the end of coal mining and gas and all that extraction stuff. I mean, it's not that much better now, to be honest, even though we have had a change of government, but we were all feeling really, really, really distressed. distressed. And there were four artists a curator and me sitting around and we decided we sort of pledged that we would try and do something like write letters and just get basically become activists basically saying look we're all women um I don't want to say how old we are <laughs> we're not young put it that way so we now have to dedicate the rest of our lives to being political it's not good enough. You know, we, what we've been doing, we've just been like moving along the treadmill of our own lives and it's time to do stuff that can create change. So we decided together to become the Dirt Witches. We started doing some, some minor uh, protests and activism around the city in different ways, some very sleuth-like at night, just putting stuff on it's whatever, like just pro... <laughs> Just small protests about plants and trees that are about to be cut down, just small-scale stuff. And then a couple of us were, were down in Manana and there was like a huge area down there, an endangered area, and they organised a huge art event down there. But then the, the 
and, and it's ongoing. So the group has grown to about 90 women and we all sort of talk together on a WhatsApp chat. But this smaller group of us, the six of us, the four artists, the curator and me, we applied for some funding from the City of Sydney because uh, there was this laneways art project. So they have these um, amazing project art projects around the city. And so we submitted a proposal to build a Banksia forest, which also <clears throat> made me feel more connected to the Banksia tree. And so the, the, the Banksia is part of, I don't want to be boring, I'll say this quite quickly, but it's part of this scrub called the Eastern Suburbs Banksia Scrub that used to be 5,300 hectares up and down the coast of Sydney and now there's only about 70 hectares left or even less. And, and it's a really interesting ecology, a discrete ecology where there's um, sugar bag bees, um, there's the Banksia trees and tea trees um, and various grasses and ground cover that all work together very synergistically and really thrive on sandy aeolian soil in Sydney, um, windswept, Re really interesting scrub and beautiful flowering. Um, well, I mean, I see it as beautiful and um, it's scrubby, it's messy. It's um, it's not a European pretty, pretty scrub. It's, it's messy, it's bent. Um, and so, yeah, so we built a 10 metre by 11 metre forest in the middle of the city. And then we did, um, you know, a series of um, smoking ceremonies from local elders to get permission to do this. And it was just really interesting because it was a really um, concrete, windy area of the city, very ugly. And people just didn't know what to make of it. And we, and in fact, we kind of struggled as a group of dirt witches because we were sort of asking those environmental ethics questions, or at least I was. They're probably getting really annoyed with me from keeping on bringing this up. And it's like, what are we doing? Aren't we just aestheticizing plants again? It's in a square. And they're like, ah, oh, we're not aestheticizing plants. It's like, I think we are. I think we've slipped back into, you know, recolonizing. And then, and then I realized maybe we were doing doing sympathetic ma magic. As a group of witches, perhaps what we were doing was mimicry. We were creating like a voodoo doll, you know, to that would have a relationship with the extant remnant scrub and that what it did was remind people of what was lost um, and maybe that's okay, maybe that's enough as an artwork to communicate the loss and to try and, um, in, you know, get, get some conversation going about conservation restoration of the eastern suburbs Banksy scrub so that was I suppose that was temporary for six months but the council extended it for a year and a half and they've just made it permanent so they actually had to completely dig up the street and they've just made it permanent so that's really wonderful and and so the dirt witches um, as a huge group and as a small group so every time there's election we just had a state election on the weekend we all go crazy and support each other hand out leaflets um, share information, go to lots of protests together, share information about protests, write to this guy, do this, you know. So it's it's a group of activists, um, mostly, it, it's all peaceful, um, most of it legal. And um, and so we're planning, we've just applied to the Ethics Centre in, in Sydney here to find a bit of time and space to plan the next big artwork. That's great. Um... I just want to thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. It has been such a pleasure. It was so delightful to read your work, but now to get to talk with you and meet you as, as a person, it's just been really wonderful. Um, so thank you for coming on the podcast. If people want to follow any of your projects, um, is there a good source that you would direct them to? Oh, that's a good point. Well, for my wider project, there's a website called The Herbarium Tales, and we're actually about to do another book with Open Humanities Press that will be available there. But it kind of documents what we've done um, for that project. And then, of course, my publisher, New South Books, has the information about the book, which will be released on the 1st of May. But thanks thanks to you, Kate. Thank you so much for um for your support and for your brilliant and thoughtful and provocative questions. Really appreciate it. And so lovely to meet you.
So lovely to meet you too. So thank you again. For those of you who are interested in the networking with plants in the Anthropocene group, please go and visit our website at networkingwithplants.org or feel free to reach out via email at networkingwithplants at gmail.com. And please continue to listen to the podcast. We'll be back in a few weeks with another great interview. So thank you so much. The music piece is kindly offered to us by artist Mylise. Mylise is a sonic artist, immersive ecology designer, and clean energy ambassador. Merging art and technology, she creates music experiences that express the voices of plants and the other inhabitants of the earth.